Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host. We come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends. It's sort of like our Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them. For the week, in just a few moments, I'll be joined by the usual suspects, David Zoll and Sarah Condon, to discuss the contents of another weekend's. But first, I had the privilege of sitting down and talking this week with Paul Walker. Paul is the rector at Christ Church in Charlottesville, Virginia, where Mockingbird is housed and headquartered, and he is the boss of the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird. David Zoll. And he's a wonderful, gracious, and fun and funny guy. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with him as much as I did. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. So here's the reason I'm interviewing you. Okay. I've I have read, I've loved your entries in the devotional, and I knew you were David's boss. Which is a thing we could talk about in a few minutes because I have loads of questions about that guy. <laughs> but somebody, Matt Milner, who is a close friend and he's going to actually be speaking at the New York conference. Uh-huh. He's was a guest on the podcast and he's been a friend for years. And I asked him about interview ideas and he had just listened to your talk about keeping score. And he said, you need to get Paul Walker mm. on. And I listened to the talk and... Is that the Birmingham I, talk you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. It's on our, it's on the, I think the reason he connected to it was we have this kind of, if you're getting to know us, like what to read, what to listen to. Yeah. And I feel like, like I've been around like the block in this scene a little bit. Like, you know, like I, 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 I read Frank Lake before I even heard of Paul Zoll. Right. I thought that talk was incredibly moving. Oh, thanks, Scott. And thank you for that. Oh, thank you. So is it like the way you expressed why we all lose keeping score in that talk? seems so obvious as as I was listening to it. And you're it was like you were inside my head and mm. heart. And my guess is inside the head and heart of everybody listening. Why do you think as as somebody who's a pastor mm-hmm. and who knows a lot of pastors, mm-hmm. right? Of of probably various denominations, why do you think there's such a resistance to the law gospel kind of way of looking at reality when it's just so true it just is so true. So empirically true, yes. Empathetically true, emotionally true, and then just true, true as well. Um, so why is there resistance to uh, expressing uh, truth that way? Is that, is that yeah, your question? Yeah, like like, it seems like this is like Brene Brown, right? Like take, for instance, Brene Brown. Right. Everybody loves Brene Brown, yes. right? She's kind of, she's, she's sort of doing a secular translated version of law gospel stuff. Yes. Why are it, it seems like why is it that this thing is why are more why is it the minority view among <laughs> the way most people preach and lead churches? Right. Well, I can't be the definitive voice on that, and I can say um, just from my own experience of why I was resistant to the message uh, post um, hearing about it from Paul Zoll in 2000 at the Advent at a conference there. Um, is the whole issue of um, autonomy, control of um, the um, the desire to not even it, and to me, it's not even kind of a works righteousness thing, but it is uh, more the sense of um, I want to have some like or in the water 
uh, for my own life and my own spiritual life. And the law gospel um, way of thinking about things means like you don't have an oar. I mean, you're just in the boat and uh, you've got to trust where the boat goes. So to like live forgiven requires ceding your story to another. Like to, to God and then and then to, to his witnesses, but living the life of self condemnation, scorekeeping, you can do that all on your own. <laughs> you can do that all on your own, and and that's um, you know I'm reading Fleming Rutledge's new book, which is fantastic, and she talks about um, the just the two worlds that we live in, the world that in which the reign of sin and death are everywhere, and you don't even have the option of forgiveness in that. And then you have, you know, we're transferred into the kingdom of the sun and you have like, um, you don't even have the option to not forgive. It's just a gift given to you. And so, but you don't have any um, agency in any of it. And I think that is the thing that uh, creates the resistance in people, even though it's really hilarious, fun way to live. Yeah. Hilarious, fun, <laughs> funny, yeah. ironic, many things. Yeah. I suppose. And also I- sort of not... Um, you you can't take yourself too seriously. I mean, you can't um, believe you're behind any great cause. You you you're you're knocked off the pedestal of your own self importance. No, you are the boss of the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird Ministries. David Zoll, you're his supervisor. David Zoll, yes, I am David Zoll's supervisor. So, like, what is he like around the office? Like, could you just tell us, like, what what thing does he do that, like, is it, does he like? What are the interesting things that he does? Is he bad with the Keurig? Is he fastidious? David is is not fastidious, no. He is not a fastidious fastidious, fellow. Um, David is uh, always, he is a prankster, uh, and he is, he's got a joie de vivre about him, uh, despite all the different things going on in his life. Uh, He's a huge team player. Um, He is... For me, he's been such an extraordinary partner in the gospel um, since all the way back when I was the the board chairman for the first board chairman for Mockingbird. And so then, when we had an opening for a college minister at Christ Church, it didn't even think you know one second. I said, "Let's move Mockingbird down here, and I need you uh, to be a preacher and to be a minister." And it's been extraordinary. That's a, that's a beautiful thing that you know, yeah, that you know him. Yeah, it's nice. I, I feel like uh, derivatively. Um, I have received a lot of blessings from your stewardship of his gifts and mm. partnering. So for that, I thank you. And also, I thank you for Ethan Richardson. Ethan, at the Tyler conference, after one of the talks, we walked into this sports bar, and these guys were like, you guys are from Mockbird. Let's buy you guys a beer. I said, Ethan, this will never happen again. Our 15 <laughs> minutes of fame, we used it. But he tells this story like where he was just kind of confused and conflicted about faith. And I think he heard you preach mm-hmm. and said something. I forget what he said. T- he said something he thought was outrageous uh-huh. uh, to you in the, in, the, in the receiving line, in that awkward moment where people are processing out. Yeah. And he said your response was the most pastoral thing he had ever heard. And that kind of was part of things falling in place for him to sort of settle into faith for himself. Yeah. Uh, do you remember that moment? I don't remember that moment, no. but um, but. Ethan's presence too is extraordinary. He's got a kind of pastoral sensitivity about him. Everybody, so the Mockingbird. I mean, Dave's up here where I am, and the Mockingbird office is down, and um, our parish administrator's dog lives in it. So we call it the kennel down there. So she brings big the dog, dog to guy. work. Big yeah. dog guy. I'm a big and dog guy. So, uh, but everybody streams in to say hello to Ethan. The children's minister, our sexton. Like we'll be down there, and people just want to come say hello to Ethan. 
that's who Ethan is. Ethan uh, emanates this vibe of graciousness. And you know, the other thing that's fascinating about your church, like, so I like, I'm a phone guy. I like the phone. Uh-huh. Like, you know, I, I'm not, not a fan of email. Well, I'm not, not a fan, but it's, it, I, I like the interpersonal connection. Your staff, like, it, whether it's like your office person, Marcy Hooker, or a woman, I called yesterday to see if I could interview you. And the woman, yeah, Lynn. Lynn, 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 yeah. Lynn was so funny. Like, you, <laughs> you, your staff has such a good sense of humor. Is that like a, a criteria for you when you're hiring people? Is it like, hey, sense of humor, high on the list? Um, in fact, yes. I mean, that, um, I was thinking a lot about that. You know, in the Law and Gospel book, one of the fruits of uh, the gospel life is not taking yourself seriously and then having a, just a funny sense of humor. And so we use humor uh, around here all the time. And uh, it is a fruit. I mean, it's just like, um, why wouldn't you? think everything is funny when there are so many things that in fact aren't funny but you know especially in this pastoral life humor is this extraordinary um, release but it's also only engendered by i think by um being delivered into a place where you're not taking yourself so uh, seriously yeah i think that is probably one of the most liberating things right when you can stop taking yourself seriously yeah but that, then you can actually really take yourself seriously in the best sense yeah it, i mean you sort of take yourself or you take the gospel seriously you take people seriously but you don't take yourself seriously you don't take like um again you, you, you're you're always you're you're never thinking about like marshalling your forces to become like an important um ministry or a force for this in American Christianity, the minute you do that, you've just lost it. <laughs> and mm. so um, we, are, we are really, um, one of the things that we prize here is trying to stay off any sort of self-propagating radar at all. Mm. That's, uh, you're actually trying to actually not keep score, which is... We're trying to not keep score, right. Which is actually helpful. Because we'd always lose, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, the, okay, in contemporary church life, right, yeah. I, f- I feel like it, in seminary, it, it's almost like, so if you're extra, if you're extra, if you're kind of industrious and like exciting things and sales and marketing, you're an evangelist. Yeah. And if you're kind of more introverted uh, it, or if you're into people's pain, you're a pastoral person. Mm-hmm. And sort of, you know, we got to staff that way, right? But Jacob Smith said he saw, he heard Paul's all preach a sermon once. It said Fisher, it was on Matthew 4, lectionary text this week, said that fishers of men just really meant, I'm going to make you a lover of people. Yeah, that's right. Interested in people. Is that, is that something that you think needs to be rethought in some way? Like that, that actually these things are probably flip sides of the same coin? Pastor and evangelist, like shepherd and evangelist? Yeah, they're the same thing. There's a, it's, a, it's an arbitrary distinction because um, basically all uh, preaching is pastoral because um, true preaching isn't a head trip, but it reaches the hearts and souls of people. And then um, say you're in um, a one-on-one counseling session or a premarital session or with somebody who's grieving, all it is is, is that you are delivering the gospel, which you might do to all these people on Sunday. You're just doing the same thing to these people that are sitting there on your couch. And so what administration is, um, hospitality is, everything is just one more avenue of pastoral care that is grounded in the gospel. So like, you know, when people are interested in going to seminary, I said, well, there's just two things. You've got to love people, and then you've got to believe and love the gospel. 
Those two mm. things. So on your bad days, right, where do you keep score? Um, my bad days, uh, I keep score uh, in my head from 1 a.m. to about 3 a.m. And I'm awake. And so, you know, you keep score about all kinds of things. I keep. What do you do when you're awake at that time? Uh, you, you watch should, TV? No, I just sort of lie in bed and fret. And then occasionally I'll remember to pray. But you just keep score about everything. I mean, what don't you keep? The question is, like, what don't you keep score about? Um, you know, how have I failed as a father today? How have I failed as a minister today? How have I failed this person? And I, two days ago, in fact, I was up from one to three thinking I was on a very difficult pastoral conversation with somebody. and. Um, I just, you know, like everybody else, you think, how could I have done it better? Was that the right thing to say? Um, you know, how, is this person getting the need that, you know, her needs met? What, 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 are, what are my own neuroses that I brought to the table? How do they affect, you know, how I wasn't able to help her? Um, those sorts of things, uh, you know, but that's just life, isn't it? I mean, that's, then you think, I mean, what don't you keep score about is the question. Paul, you could get good headphones and you could be listening to podcasts or something. I'm just saying <laughs> yeah, to like to mitigate some of your self-judgment. I mean, I'm just saying. Like, yeah, it's true. That's yeah. I'm going to get David Peterson on getting you some good headphones. Good. That's it's, good. It's also, we should give a shout out to David Peterson who's helping me out this year on the podcast. He's yeah. a great guy, a well, wonderful here, person. And here's the thing about um, the power of condemnation is uh, in the under the realm of sin and death is that no matter how good your headphones are, no matter how engaging that voice is, in the bad times, the other voice drowns out the good voice. Yeah, that makes sense. You're good. You're good. Tell me about four o'clock. Oh, four o'clock. Well, that was um, just when I was preaching this past Sunday and looking for something um, that I, I preached on the text a bunch of times about, um, about the two disciples of John the Baptist coming to see Jesus. And John says, look, well, follow me. There's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And they um, go and they hang out with Jesus. Where are you staying? And then for whatever reason, the text says it was four o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, why is that there? Why is it four o'clock in the afternoon? And for a good preaching to happen for me, it, I've got to be engaged in something creative and new about what's going on. So then um, that gave me the... So you're not someone, you get a guest preaching gig. You don't go to your folder like, oh, what did I preach on that text yeah. three years ago? You kinda, well, you're kind of beginning again at the beginning. I do that every time until I waste two hours and think this is never going to work. And then I <laughs> start again. So it just doesn't ever work. It's got to be new. It's got to be fresh. And so um, that, and that's where the creativity happened for me in that particular passage. Because I thought, what happens at four o'clock? Well, four o'clock's a no man's land. You know, it's four o'clock's too early for a drink. It's too uh, late for a nap. It's... Um, to uh, late to start something fresh. It's, you know, you can't have a meal with anybody at four o'clock. I mean, what happens at four o'clock? And I remember being, when we traveled in Europe, my wife and I, we always about four o'clock, that was like the deepest homesick time that we had. And then started thinking about one of my favorite authors, William Styron, who wrote a book called A Darkness Visible, in which at four o'clock in the afternoon, he would plunge into depression. And so hmm. I started thinking like, when you meet Jesus, you're meeting Jesus at four o'clock, and four o'clock is also AKA your time of um, deep need and loneliness. And so, you know, it had maybe had nothing to do with that, but um, for me in that moment, it did. Hmm. I thought you were going to say that's when you wake up as a morning. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, after I'm, the two hours of dread. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, usually I'm, that's when the paper comes at four o'clock, and when you hear the paper, you know you're in bad shape. But, um, <laughs> so. 
Now, one of your daughters studied theology at St. Andrews? Yes, she did. Yeah, for a couple of years. Yeah. What what was that like? Like, what were your conversations like when she was studying theology academically? Uh, it was really, it was wonderful. We were, we would, she would send me her papers and we would talk them through and um, she was, you know, we would be able to engage on, on that level. And, but we've always, even since this is my oldest daughter, has always sort of thought that way. And we've always engaged, even when she was um, a young girl, we would talk these things through together. What, what are you reading right now? Like, you well, know, I'm reading Fleming Rutledge's book. Um, There's the not resu- a bad footnote in that book. I mean, I'm actually reading every single footnote. And so, uh, and we're going to do a, a, a um, Lenten series on it that we're working on. And so, you know, it's a 650 page book. And so I've been reading that a lot. I've been reading it in the mornings, actually, sort of devotionally and taking a chunk out of it at a time. But that's really captivated, captivated me. I just um I'm reading Hamlet again right now. Um I connect Oh, with- me too. Me too. Yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> I connect with him cuz he's up To at- be or not to be. That's the question. Well, right? he's he's oh, yeah. he's a guy that's always four o'clock, you know? Like he's a guy that um he's the prototype of the existential angster of of life who needed to be delivered into a place of no scorekeeping. Uh and I'm reading actually what I'm doing now is reading a book of of poems by Mary Oliver called Owls and Other Fantasies, and I'll take a poem a, um, a day and sort of read that through. I'm reading, I just finished the Andrew Clavin book uh, about his, uh, the great good thing about his um, conversion to Christianity. And then I always try to sort of keep some Faulkner uh, going as well. A little Faulkner. It's like Mason Dixon line. You got to have a little Faulkner. You got to have a little Faulkner going on. Yeah. Absolutely. So, you know, Karl Barth had, you know, Frederick Schleiermacher, who some people say is like sort of the father of modern or liberal theology. And however, you know, one litigates that, whatever. But Schleiermacher for Barth was like an alter ego. It was like the voice in his head that he saw himself working kind of over and against in some, in some ways. Well, he was charitable in that. So who's your alter ego? Who's the person or thinker that is sort of like, if not diametrically opposed, just clearly on a different team? Mm-hmm. that you look at with some kind of strange mm-hmm. admiration. Mm-hmm. Is there someone like that for you? It's a good question. Um, and uh, the answer to that question eludes me at the moment. I don't really know. that. I don't really have somebody right now that I am in kind of dialectical tension with uh, some, some theological author. Um, I'm very it, impressed you use the word dialectical non-pretentiously. <laughs> Because I was listening to like the Slate Culture Gab uh, uh, Gab Fest, and they were just like, or no, it was a Slate Book Review Club something. It wasn't one of Slate's podcasts, and they start they were using the word dialectic, and it was like, we got to sound like our graduate <laughs> professor, like so, like that was non pretentious use of it. Which well, we're filled with pretension in Charlottesville, Virginia, so uh, I probably was pretentious, but um, but and part of that too is my particular way that I landed in this um, expression of, of, of theology, and it's working through uh, Dallas Willard and working through Richard Foster, and this is you know, a long time ago now, but working through um, sort of classic evangelicalism, working through um, real liberalism as well, so working through sort of more Anglo-Catholic understanding of things. So there was um, 
there's a there was a a, a big swath of uh, theological um, expression that I got behind until it felt like to me uh, that I was given this gift, which returned to me a hundredfold rather than just twentyfold or fiftyfold or sixtyfold. Were you raised in the church? I was raised in the church um, and sort of marginally uh, 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 in Richmond at a, a mainline church. We would go maybe once every six weeks, and it was just part of the Richmond, West End Richmond culture to go. It didn't really mean much to me. What what kind of church was it? It was a Methodist church, a big— Methodism never takes. Never takes. It doesn't have brand—it doesn't have good brand—great potlucks. But not good brand loyalty. Yeah, and it had no brand loyalty for me. And and this particular church, I can't even comment on that on the church. It was my worldview. You know, I believed in God. My worldview was that God was out there somewhere. Um, but my anthropology was was that w- w- I was a good person. Uh, we're all good people, and the purpose in life is to. Um, be a good person to other people, and God somehow will keep score of that. So that was my, as far as I thought about self and God, those were my um, understandings of, of, of anthropology and theology. And this was in Richmond, Virginia. In Richmond, Virginia. I spent the best Cinco de Mayo of my life in Richmond. Did you Virginia. really? No, By Arethmo, I think, was playing. So if, if you could sit down with the pastor of that church, mm. Today, mm-hmm. and maybe you know him or her. I don't know. I do, just, I do not know. Okay, what would you say to them? I would say, "How's it going? Um, how's ministry for you? Um, it's a hard job. I don't know. I would. What I wouldn't do is engage theologically with them. That's what I've learned is not to engage on in theological argument with people who are interested in theological argument for the sake of argument. Is that because uh, no one ever wins an argument? Nobody ever wins an argument. I mean, people. Because if I go, if you prove me right, right, or if you prove yourself right, I probably feel shamed. So then, the next time the idea, even if it's got some veracity to it, I'll associate with the shame more than the truth of the idea. It's just a total non-starter. Um, and so, it, it, yes, that's exactly right because it's all about scorekeeping, isn't it? And I think that's a really good way to say it, Scott. And you are using that other person as a way to. Um, to kind of fluff up your own theological walls uh, or shore up your own theological walls about what you believe. So you're, uh, you're, uh, you're lackey, you're subordinate, David Zoll. Mm-hmm. Uh, good guy, could shave a little more. but mm-hmm. Yeah, and tuck his shirt tail in once in a while. Exactly, a little bit. I'm trying to work on him with the sartorial <laughs> stuff. You know, like it's, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best. He does clean up on Sunday mornings really well. Right, yeah, it's, it's exactly. He says he only shaves once a week. Yeah. Once a week. So now, David had the cover story yes, on did. Christianity Today about the Reformation. Mm-hmm. And you kind of spent some time, it seems, in the thoughtful evangelical world. Yes. Why is it that it's almost like that's, the, I feel like one of the harder sells it is. for the relevancy of, of what Luther was on to yes. in the 16th century. Like, I feel like it's, you know, I have friends that are secular Jews that see the sensibility and obviousness behind the scorekeeping talk you gave. Mm-hmm. Why, why, is, why is it that like thoughtful evangelicalism sometimes is the hard soil where the seeds don't drop and um, nestle in? That's a, that's a good question, but um, there, um, often there's a sort of lack of a sense of humor. 
<laughs> there is a <laughs> sense of a kind of um, uh, dourness about life. There is a need for um, tightly scripted um, theological construct. So, and I've been there. I've I've lived in it, and it's the law, and the law kills and oppresses. So, but you know, um, who knows? There are a million different reasons that people come to where they come to. Is that sort of to also like when you have like a sort of doctrine of about the Bible that functions as a law, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. And then and then you get a little sophisticated education. You know, well, this view of inerrancy can't. I can't keep this, but I'll replace it with like an inerrant church, or I'll read some yeah, like, There's something like some anthropological anchor. Yes. Yes, I think there's an anthropological anchor, and um, for me, it, the 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 so-called argument um, boils down to a post-regenerational anthropology. Who are you after you've been born again? And is there a distinction between um, you and anybody else as they experience the world in the world? And for me, the answer is no. I mean, there that you we have been delivered into this kingdom of the Son, and we've been given. Jesus's righteousness imputed to us, but as we experience life, Simul Estes et Picotter, Eustace et Picotter, um, th- there's, I don't have any, I have, I have even less hope in my own will or ability to, um, to do good uh, than I would have growing up thinking that I was a good person. I, you have coined a phrase, post-regenerational anthropology. I've never heard that phrase. And now I'm going to start using it. Oh, good. Send me some money every time you do. Well, I don't know about that. But, okay. You know, All right. Don't if, send if me you, money. If you tell David to raise my pay, I will do no, it. Paul, thanks for coming on the podcast. This has been delightful. And it's nice to put Thank a you, name Scott. and a voice with someone whose words, it's from the devotional I've meant a lot. And thank well, you for your connection to, uh, I mean, somebody, I think somebody said that, that so a friend of mine who studied Jonathan Edwards was reading and said, like, when we are finally delivered into God's new future, Part of the romance and mystery will be seeing all the connections. Yeah, yeah. And so some of the first fruits of that is getting like conversations like this where I get to connect with someone who's connected to so many rivers of life for me. So thank you for your faithfulness and your sense of humor. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for what you're doing too. The podcast is awesome. And I look forward to um, really encourage everybody to come to the 10th anniversary conference. It's going to be fantastic. And, and you will be there? I, yeah, it's my privilege to serve as the chaplain there. So I, I gave the first talk of the first conference. So it's a, um, it's a, it's a kind of, there's a nice symmetry for me, and I'm looking forward to it. It will be, it will be nice to connect with you in person there. All right, Scott, thanks for your good work. Thank you. So let's sink another drink, because it'll give me time to think. If I had a chance, I'd have a to dance, and I'll be dancing with myself. day to you both. I figure it's, it's so interesting because usually the podcast doesn't go out to the afternoon, but we record it often in the morning. And then last weekend I said, good evening, because we recorded it in the evening, but most people listen to the day. So I'll just say good day so that people's listening experience is not affected by my salutation being in tension with the time of day this production is released. So there you go. The method to my madness. I'm here with, once again, David Zoll and Sarah Condon. And David, we've got some very exciting announcements to make. 
yes, before we jump in to um, pretty exciting things going on in Mockingbird, first is that we, uh, yesterday, Ethan sent the final files for the food and drink issue to the printer. That means it, we should have it. It should ship by the end of the month. And um, it looks unbelievable. I can't wait to share little snippets with everyone. But just so if you're a subscriber, make sure you're current. If you want to get this one, it's going to be terrific. So um, it should be available to order or pre-order uh, early next week. Other thing is that we finally uh, added a bunch of details about the New York City Conference. Now, there's a lot of... Um, pleasantly, uh, I'm happy to report that a lot of tickets are being sold for this thing. So people will probably want to pick up their tickets fairly soon. But the speakers page is not is by no means complete. Actually, we're waiting on confirmations from a couple of actually sort of larger uh, names. And um, there's a couple more people I need to add. But those details are there as well, sort of the basic time frame of the schedule if people are coming and want to plan. Uh, for other stuff to do, so check it out. Larger names than larger names than who? Like Sarah Khan is on there. Larger than Sarah? There's no one. La- What's a larger name? Uh, well, I'm not gonna say. So that's just gonna keep the. Sus- dun, you're gonna have dun, to dun. hold the suspense. So, so unlike so unlike the Lord, you're a respecter of person. Well, I've, kinda, I know there's classes of people <laughs> yeah. that are hundred percent. I've just Scott. been I've just been burned before. And, uh, there's neither there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor free. But there are gradations in speakers. <laughs> speakers. Yeah, there there's are the celebrities. People. There are yeah, people okay. you have to pay uh, a lot, and those you don't have to pay much. But um. <laughs> so it can be reduced to monetary value. Hey, oh wow. This is this is so grace and practice. Grace and practice, baby. I think we're about to talk about can a piece. Can we wear like can we wear name tags? Like I'm a big name, like I'm a medium name. Like what is it? I, I I'm better be a medium know. name. Give me a break. Give me a break. <laughs> you're ex- you're, Sarah, despite the fact that you're a size seven shoe and 120 pounds, you're always oh an extra large name in my book. The shoe sizes last week of Val did me in. Oh my gosh. Uh, started the out last... as an eight and a half and a 10 after two children. So there you go. Okay, we have it. It's been announced. That's I can't believe you went there. What did Lindsay say that you were a eight? All yeah, women are she size was like eight? So, size seven. So it was size like seven, so lovely. There's no way anyone is as tall as I am and is a seven. It's just impossible. Yeah, so. when she said it, I thought, hmm, which one? <laughs> I don't. I, I don't say, know. Before we get in, before we get into the weekender content, I'd like to invite our listeners to pray an imprecatory prayer uh, to cast dispersions. On Steve Ray, the inaugural announcer today, because the campaign fired the 80 year old Bratman, Charles Bratman, who has done every uh, inaugural parade announcement since Eisenhower. Mm. They bumped him for a guy who was a campaign contributor named Ray, Steve Ray, who's a free, freelance announcer. But this guy, Bratman, they had him as a guest on an Orthodox, cute old Jewish guy. And basically, he was doing the announcing for the Washington Senators' spring training in Florida. And they said, you're so good. Why don't you come back to D.C. and do it for the real He's like, oh, my gosh, I'd be thrilled. This is my dream job. D.C. is my hometown. So he announced Eisenhower throwing the first pitch out. And, 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 and he was made announcer and PR guy for the club. And he kind of introduced Eisenhower to the players. And Eisenhower liked him so much that they tracked him. I was like, I want this guy to be our announcer. So this guy, every, every, he's, hey, you know, it might be his last one. 
and we bump them. So I'm praying that that microphone fails for Steve Ray. <laughs> I pray that there's feedback. I hope the sound people are incompetent. And But NBC did let, he said, well, we'll let you announce for us. So Charles Brotman, I will only be watching NBC's coverage to support this day on Inauguration Day. My man, 89-year-old Charles Brotman. <laughs> Mazel tov to him. For his, a, a real mensch. A real mensch. <laughs> I'm like, quick, let's all say the, the affirming Yiddish phrases we know. Lechayim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Charlie, that you were fired. <laughs> I wonder if Trump called him in like, like on The Apprentice. You're fired. <laughs> so, but he is hired now by NBC. Thank you, NBC. Mazel tov to you. And I hope that your ratings are better than everyone else. There you go. There's my uh, angry rant. I thought we get to David, let us begin. Yes, we're beginning with a an episode of Freakonomics, the Freakonomics podcast, which was super, super interesting. Scott, I believe you sent this to uh, us. Um, it's really an interview with this um, economist, Raj Chetty, who's referred to as the economist's economist. He's a guy who is... Um, He's actually my age, so I'm I'm a little bit uh, right. I was a little defensive about reading anything about <laughs> someone this high achieving who's also my age. Um, however, uh, he is sort of beloved by both right and left. He really tries to remain independent ideologically, which I think is a um, of increasingly brave stance um, uh, on a day like today. But um, the the host of Freakonomics. Um, uh, Dubner and uh, Dubner and the other guy, um, they uh, basically they open up by saying in 1970, it's all about the American dream. What percentage of 30 year olds in America earn more money than their parents had earned at their age? Uh, that's the question number one. And the question number two is what percentage of American 30 year olds today earn more than their parents earned at age 30? The answer is surprising. In 1970, that percentage of 30-year-olds who earned more than their parents had when they were 30, adjusted for inflation, was 92%. The American dream really sort of at a high watermark. Um, but today, today, that same percentage is around 50%. This has led a lot of people to say that the American dream is dead. It's not just cranky uh, older folks who are sort of nostalgic. Um, it's, I guess, nearly 50% of millennials polled by Harvard thought that the American dream is dead, that social mobility and economic mobility really are a whole lot more limited than they um, are purported to be. And in fact, it turns out that uh, you're much more likely to realize the American dream if you're growing up in Canada. So they maybe they're talking about, has it just moved north? Um, you hear that, hoser? So uh, Raj Chetty... <laughs> is uh, this guy who moved from India to Milwaukee, I think, when he was age nine. And what they found is that, that it's a complicated uh, statistic because within America, there are actually a number of places that truly are lands of opportunities, places where kids achieve the American dream. In some places like Salt Lake City, 
or the Bay Area, something like 13% make it from the bottom fifth of uh, sort of income earners to the top fifth. That's that's a- So you're better off if you're a hoser or a mormon. Yes. And uh, and actually, in the center of the country, like in Iowa, you see more than 15 or 16% of kids making it from the bottom fifth to the top fifth. It's places like Atlanta, places that are very highly segregated, um, where there's very little diversity um, and um, opportunity. It turns out, and actually, it really has what he what he found is that it had everything to do with the context in which you're raised. That is driven by differences in childhood environments. So, if you move from a place that's sort of not very mobile to a place that is mobile before you're nine years old, odds are you are going to experience social mobility. If you move, yeah, it wasn't the first the first thing where he found that he did like a study on kids. That, so it was controlled, all moving from Oakland to San Francisco. And so he could really adjust, he could keep control groups for age for the same type of they're all moving from one less diverse and thriving environment to one that's more more diverse. And so the empirical grounding behind his stuff, I thought, was amazing. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. And really, age nine is the cutoff. Now it it is all about this. You know, um, you know, does it? We're not self-made people. We're the, the 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 environment in which we grow up is a huge predictor of where we um of where we end up. Now that sounds, I would say, probably more blue state ideolo- ideologically than red state. But then he finds that a lot of the places that where there's the most social mobility, it's actually the primary place is Salt Lake City, which is so conservative, and uh, it. But it's the quintessential ca- uh, example of a city with a lot of social capital, where um, you have a community like the Mormon Church, which helps people so uh, significantly. So there's this kind of in group mentality, but within that, there's enormous mobility so it's it's a very complicated interesting uh situation but it plays into our sense of our own self-validation we all want to take credit for our you know uh for our growth but we also we then we want to blame other people for whatever setbacks we experience or whatever lack of growth we have it turns out the truth of that is a lot more uh complicated um where did you guys uh, fall out on this? Sir, sir, did you move a lot as a kid? And if so, did you do it at the right time? Like, could you have been a brain science <laughs> uh, surgeon or something if you had well, moved a little early? I was born in Nashville uh, because my parents are both from the Delta, from the Mississippi Delta. And Nashville is was to um, the Mississippi Delta, perhaps what Mississippi was to my husband and I moving to New York City. Uh, so it felt like a very big thing for them. Um, but then they ended up coming back to Mississippi. To be close to family. I mean, I, I I read this and the whole time I kept thinking about when I was in high school, particularly how high the statistic was for teen pregnancy um, in our community and for the whole state. I mean, it felt like when we graduated from high school, we should have gotten like bonus certificates if we didn't get pregnant, like as 16 year olds. Um, I mean, it really, there were so many. I'm so. It's the award. It's the chastity award ceremony. Yeah, exactly. Or or the award ceremony to show who's uh, who is capable in using birth control. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, I mean, I I don't know. I I feel very grateful for my parents in that context. This is probably TMI on a podcast, but I'm pretty open about it. My mom put me on birth control when I was 13 because she was like, well, you know, I, this this seems like this is inevitable that you could get pregnant. All these girls are getting pregnant. Um, 
which I don't need to go in the details of any more than that. I've said too much as it is, I'm sure for some people's mental health to know that about me, but you could go on my mental health. <laughs> but I mean, I mean it's it not was a, fine, but but this is not making it any worse. Right, it was a it. clear recognition <laughs> point for my mom that that was going to be a, that was going to be a way to to perhaps keep me out of entering a system a lot. I mean, I have I have a lot of friends from high school who have teenagers and I'm 34, you know. So, um mm. it I don't know. I I I totally agree and I and I love this research that is that at a certain point and of course, we're talking about narrative and story later uh, in the show. But at a certain point, um, it becomes hard to think outside of the story you've been given. It becomes hard to to sort of move that narrative. And of course, it makes me think of the bound will. And then it makes me think of these really heavy things about, you know, um, does our family tree become its own bound will in some ways? Well, I mean, yeah, it does, mm-hmm. you know. So, um Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I think yeah. First off, just personally, I think generally, good public policy is allergic to strong ideology, and that, and I think that's true here. Here's somebody that's so on the ground with the data, and you know, oftentimes, like the reality, we we distort it to see how we want it, what we want to see, how we want to see it. And this is a guy who's really trying to see what's there, and he's consulted with politicians from both parties, and I really like that. And I think that that's admirable. And, you know, even research that he rediscovered, like he looked at all this research from the Clinton, you know, moved opportunity years. And people said, well, it didn't work. We said, well, no, it did work for the younger kids and all, all these connections and correlations. And but David, in your dad's book, Grace and Practice, I should, David and Sarah, I don't know why I said David, David, Sarah, and our friend and colleague, mentor, uh, Paul Zoll says, in the section of grace and politics. He says, the theology of grace invites a non-romanticized preferential option for the poor. Mm. The picture of this is probably something like a moderate, non-ideological, and non-utopian form of socialism. Has this sort of socialism ever been put together? <laughs> and he says, maybe it's something like Canada or New Zealand. But I think that that's right. I like that he says, moderate and non-ideological. It's not utopian. You don't think we can, we can sort of make the romanticized mm. city on a hill ever. But... It's a view of politics that, that focuses on generosity and where poor people wouldn't be stigmatized because so much of who they are is out, is out of their control. Or, you know, it's not that there's no room for responsibility, but, but oftentimes we don't have – people that are not well off have had enormously challenging circumstances Absolutely. that put them there. And people that have made it would not be so prideful about making it because they realize so much of them making it was not their own doing. They were set up. So, so I think it would just allow us to be a, a generally a society that prized equality uh, and generosity more. So yeah. I like this guy. Yeah. He seems like a really interesting guy. I just wish he was about 10 years older. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't he get his PhD or at 23? Is that what? He's like, I basically stopped taking undergrad courses my sophomore like, year. And how, it was, I was like, how did really that work? Six year, it was but a six-year PhD. Too smart. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Athanasius wrote the Nicene Creed at 25. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to hear it. Ooh, and then there's, there's that whole Mozart thing. That whole Mozart thing. Well, we're moving on
All right, so the next uh, piece is an interview you sent us, Scott, is from Salon. So um, ideological bells should be going off there. But it's uh, an interview with fascinating George Lakoff, who I've, I always find interesting to read him. He uh, is sort of known as one of the founding fathers of cognitive linguistics, and, but he writes a lot about politics. He's kind of well-known among sort of lefty uh, circles. He wrote a book called Moral Politics and Don't Think of an Elephant. And a lo- he, he was a huge influence on Jonathan Haidt. And what he talks, he's talking about how he believes and what he was trying to say during the campaign, too, is that he believes that the way that uh, the Democrats framed the election, the way that they talked about issues actually helped the conservatives, uh, the Republicans win. And this is what he meant when a lot of people have said that. But this is what he meant. He said, if you're a conservative going into politics, there's a good chance you'll study cognitive science. That is how people really think and how to market things by advertising. So they know people think using frames and metaphors and narratives and images and emotions and so on. That's second nature to anyone who's taken a marketing course. I guess uh, on the, you'd be more inter- interested in business. Um, many of the people who have gone into conservative communications have done that and know very well how to market their ideas. Now, if you are a progressive, you go to college and you're interested in politics, you're, what are you going to study? Well, you'll study political science, law, public policy, economic theory, and so on. But you're not going to wind up studying marketing, most likely, and you're not going to study either cognitive science or neuroscience. What you'll learn in these courses is what is called Enlightenment Reason from 1650 from Descartes. And here's what that reasoning says. What makes us human beings is that we are rational animals and rationality is defined in terms of logic. Recall that Descartes was a mathematician and logician. He argued that reasoning is like seeing a logical proof that our ideas can fit the world because God would not lie to us, end of quote. The assumption is that um, if we think logically and we all have the same reasoning, uh, if you just tell people the facts, they should reason to the same correct conclusion. And that just isn't true. And that keeps not being true, and liberals keep making the same mistake year after year after year. Um, And another problem, he goes on to say, was the assumption that all you have to do is look at issues and give facts about issues, and the facts about issues supposedly show up in polls and then apply them to demographics. So there's an assumption, for example, that educated women in Philadelphia suburbs were naturally going to vote for Hillary because they were highly educated. They turned out to also be Republican. And what made them Republican was Republican views, like Republican views on the Supreme Court, abortion, things like that. So they didn't go all go out and vote for Hillary. Um, and um, he then goes on. He what he one of the things, main things he's saying is that people have sort of grow up uh, with two different moral frameworks: a sort of an, of a nurturant father uh, worldview or a sort of authorit- authoritarian father worldview, and that would be the more conservative. The other one would be the more. Uh, liberal. And he said, many Americans who depend on health care, affordable health care, have strict father positions and voted for Trump against their interests. And this is something that has been known for ages, that a lot of poor conservatives vote against their material interests because they're voting for their worldview. And the reason for it is that their worldview defines who they are. They're not going to vote against their own definition of who they are. Now, what he's saying is um, what we just say over and over and over again, is that um, People were not primarily rational creatures. We have rational faculties, but the uh, we are really driven by our uh, our, our our hearts. And what is the, the the great thing we like to repeat? The the, the formulation of Cranmer's anthropology is what the heart that desires 
the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Now, this proves to be true over and over and over again. The people on the sort of left side of the equation politically tend to have a much higher anthropology where they view that if you just educate people, if you just give them enough facts, that they'll be able to learn. Uh, they'll be able to sort of follow you and choose what's best for themselves. People on the right, therefore, are accused of being much more cynical. And sometimes they are, in fact, that they're, they're manipulative, like, like, mar- like the way that marketers sort of manipulate our emotional sides. But that happens to be one side is sort of dealing with what people, how people really think, and the other one is dealing with how people should think. And um, it reminded me a lot of that Thomas Wolfe quote that we posted a couple weeks uh, weeks ago, which is really not a politically correct statement, but it seems to be borne out, especially in political uh, campaigns. He says, the deepest search in life, it seemed to me, the thing that in one way or another was central to all living was man's search to find a father. Not merely the father of his flesh, not merely the lost father of his youth, but the image of a strength and wisdom external to his need and superior to his hunger, to which the belief and power of his own life could be united. Now, um, as Christians, of course, we believe in a father who is... Uh, who does have, who who has power and is authoritative, but is the ultimate nurturing uh, father who lays down his life. Donald Trump. So... It's very complicated when you try to tie this into religion, but Lakoff. Oh, it's not. Thought, we're not. We're talking about. Who, oh, we're talking about God. <laughs> gotcha, okay. I, I was. I was followers. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Scott, did you okay. see there was a there was a New Yorker cartoon yesterday of Donald, Donald Trump putting his hand on the um being sworn in, and he's like, "Oh, that's what a Bible looks like." <laughs> so um, it's huge. It's a great. I mean, not nothing's better than uh, the Bible. Art of the deal, though, number two. <laughs> It's funny, though. I, I feel like uh, having uh, Trump sort of so radically decoupled from uh, no one would call him like a practicing Christian. It's actually kind of a relief to not have that dealing with our, with our, with our commander in chief. Anyway, what did you think of what Lakoff said, guys? Well, I just kept thinking about uh, why the gospel is so necessary right now uh, in some ways, because it so there's this interesting, um, I, I very, very rarely, and you all can attest to this, um, very rarely get in Facebook debates. <laughs> yeah, um, never, and I, right? I definitely don't like to have them on my page. Um, however, there was a, an interesting piece that came out from Christianity Today about how, um, you know, there's all these women's marches um, today, and I think there's some this weekend, all over the country. And there's a group of young women, uh, I think they're, they call themselves New Wave Feminists. I wasn't familiar with them, although I might actually be one. Um, is this a same, this is like third wave feminism? Is, is, it, is it different than third wave? Oh, Scott, I don't know. People it sounds say like feminism, third wave. I'm like, oh, I just get so, tired. Yeah, third wave. New wave. Yeah, so I don't know. Like new wave music? I don't know. Um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, but they, they consider themselves to be pro-life, and they have essentially been officially uh, um, not welcomed, not invited. They're not put on any of the promotional material now for these women's marches. And so I, you know, in, in light of where we are as a country right now and, and how women's voices seem particularly crucial on a lot, you know, a lot of issues like equal pay and racial reconciliation and all sorts of things. It was so disturbing to me that because of the way these women feel about being pro-life um and because of the way their hearts have guided them they're just completely cut off from the conversation to be with other women um on on these issues that affect all of us and um i just i feel like 
uh, liberals who, uh, who I know and loved and two of whom raised me, uh, can really kind of shoot themselves in the foot sometimes. I mean, I just, to just cut, um, cut off conversation because like they view conservatives as being illogical, not following their logic, not listening, not doing as they're told. I mean, it just, it, 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 it kind of baffles me. I mean, the, the, the part of this actually that struck me the most because we're in Texas and the huge Latino population was the bit about, um, how, uh, Latino leaders voted for Trump because essentially because the Clinton campaign um, ignored the he, how did he put it? He said they they the Clinton campaign ignored the values that the Latino community just as a general rule holds in terms of wanting sort of a, a, a strict father in charge. Um, and so they just assumed the Latino population would vote for um, Clinton. And of course, you know, in a lot of ways, they did not. So. Um, this idea of values over logic is is pretty fascinating. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. David Brooks, in the beginning of his book, The Social Animal, says, you know, that science and technology don't usually create new philosophies, but they often overthrow or enthrone old ones. And he said, you know, the best class he took in, as an undergrad was a class on the British and French Enlightenment. I think he's basically what he thinks everything about neuroscience and social sciences all these depth psychology are teaching us is that the british enlightenment thinkers were right and the french were wrong and he thought because thinkers like uh, adam smith or hume or edmund burke like these are people that took sentiment and emotion really seriously and didn't think you could rebuild the human being from the ground up like they did in the french and some french enlightenment thinkers thought you could do and so i think that that with david it's interesting because i think both liberals and conservatives have different kinds of high anthropologists. Mm. So, so yeah. liberals again believe in sort of the, the educatability of everybody, maybe to a, to a fault, and in the, in the possibility for government solutions. Whereas conservatives think if you just get people, let, let them be industrious, mm-hmm. give them, yeah. you know, it's just funny because like the market can like no, it will just regulate itself all the time, and these. So I think that people like privilege what parts of human being, like you yeah. know. Your dad has, has written in Grace and Practice that, you know, the church isn't an original sin-free zone. And I think what, on the left and the right, we pick original sin-free mm-hmm. zones yeah. uh, and, and then pick ones that are extra sinful. You know, like, so if you're a liberal, it's the market's the worst. If you're conservative, the governments can't do anything right. And you, you know, it, it, so I think that, that it, it, this guy's research is great, too, because he just goes to, like, you know, he goes to the – Nancy Pelosi invites him in to speak to – that caucus during the Bush W George W Bush's presidency, and he said, "Look, let me tell you guys the one thing strict father can't do is like betray the family's trust." Mm. And I would be saying if I was running, you know, I would be running against how how George Bush, the strict father, betrayed our trust in Iraq and weapons of mass destruction. Like it's really interesting, but we gotta check the polling first. And of course, the pollsters, oh, he polls well on 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 trustability. And so like, oh, we can't do that. And he's like, this is the difference. Democrats follow the polls. Republicans try to change the polls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like the fact that like they just couldn't get out of a narrative yeah. that, that currently – and that's just so much of life is like we're, we're stuck in frames of reference that are so self-defeating, yeah. right? And so counterproductive. And yet – we like them. And, right? yeah. There's something, there's safety. Well, to and it. so self-righteous. I mean, that's the thing on either side. Like it's the, the, which is why we so, I mean, I know I'm like the Southern Baptist on the podcast, but like, which is why we need Jesus <laughs> so desperately right now, because it, we're just, con- we're constantly being pulled out 
to draw lines and to like stand and just like swim in our own disgusting self-righteousness. Like that's where we are now. Yeah. Um, you're welcome for the visual, but no. it's just, you know, I mean, I, I doing the backstroke, I, you know, just yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, this feels so good just to swim in this swamp of my, you know, self-justification and, and, you know, it's all stuck in our ears and we can't hear anybody next to us. So. Yeah. And I, you know, I a hundred percent agree with you, Scott. I mean, w- what we just talked about in the Freakonomics thing, the whole sort of self-made man, that entire myth is built on a, a high anthropology. So it, this, this sort of whole doctrine about personal responsibility and, you know, you are your own agent, basically, what are you talking about? Agency constantly. So both sides, you're a hundred percent right. So, and, and I also want to say Lakoff is great, but I, he's not um, St. Paul. So I don't want to, um, he, right. there is a little bit of this sort of, he's not, <laughs> you get this stuff like oh strict fathers versus you know nurturant fathers which one right. which one sounds better to you you know it's like well yeah. um there's you know some would say the nurturant father sounds like mother and or right. that sounds like um can't indecisive or right. that some this strict father also sounds like someone who makes you feel safe and right. so it's it's it, like he, which one will buy himself, me a pack of cigarettes yeah <laughs> what what I'm trying to say is he himself yeah. is framing it when he as as a as a, as a liberal he's right. framing it when he even talks about his frame so we cannot escape this as Sarah says we need to be delivered from it. Shall I, shall, I, shall I transition us into... Proceed, th- my friend. We were talking about Todd May in the New York Times wrote an wrote a incredibly trenchant article um, about something we've been talking about a lot that, uh, <laughs> reinf- that reinforces our story, <laughs> that makes us feel self-justified. Um, well, anyway, C.J. Green, my uh, beloved colleague and friend, wrote one of the most fabulous pieces for our site uh, the last couple weeks um about it um the 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 um excuse me the piece in the times by todd may is called the stories uh we tell ourselves and cj's piece is called the only thing you've got is what you can sell making peace with the stories we tell ourselves and um i'm gonna sort of uh go switch from cj to todd may but uh, may talks about how we tell stories that make us seem adventurous or funny or strong. We tell stories that seem to make our our lives seem interesting. And we tell these stories not only to others, but to ourselves. And um, CJ butts in here. He says, I've come to recall the results of this, the 1984 effect, that the the Ministry of Truth in Orwell's 1984 alters historical documents uh, to alter the truth. So we have these little ministries of truth sorting files in our brains, shredding the documents we find most embarrassing, or at least putting the ones on the top of the pile that we find that we're proudest of. Or if our narrative, of course, about ourselves is self-loathing, then it's taking out any of the positive and putting only the negative. This is all what Carol Tavris, who you interviewed, Scott, this is um, what uh, what she and Elliot Aronson talk about in Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me. This is something, again, uh, that we that we I do think is ultimately true. Uh, but here's May. He says, if we, reflect on, if we reflect on the stories we tell about ourselves, both to others and to ourselves, we may find out things about who we are that complicate the view we would prefer to be identified with. 
With the proliferation of various cable news channels, the internet, niche marketing, clustering in communities of like-minded people, most of us live in echo chambers that reflect the righteousness of our lives back to us. There's that word, righteousness. Um, We are reinforced to think of ourselves as embodying the right values, as living in ways that are at least justified, if not superior. Reflecting on the stories we tell about ourselves might reveal to us other aspects of who we are and what we value, aspects that would complicate the simple picture provided by our echo chamber. Indeed, uh, CJ, um, this is we, we were talking about how we're the the memory is a terrible historian, but it's like the it's uh but it's it's the historian we rely on the most. So we when we retell stories, we always highlight whatever the our our own narrative, and that's why we. F- that's why I think on Mockingbird in this cast, we're always deconstructing this word narrative, not because we don't like Taylor Swift and, you know, uh, say yeah, you're damn right. It's not because we love Taylor Swift, but when she said that, uh, what was it? Um, ta- Kanye was sort of getting in the way of her is, is taking her narrative away from her. Uh, the narrative is the law. Narrative is is very clearly the law. You have once you have a story about yourself, then you have to edit both yourself and your 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 actions in order to fit it. You cannot let it down. It becomes a ironclad psychologically, spiritually speaking, and it's this this is imported into the church. It's not even imported in the church. The church Im- it exports it. You know, yeah. it is it is such a heavy thing. This storytelling mechanism, which is the law. Um, CJ uh, ends on a note, I think, of profound hope. He says, there is someone who tells a different story about us. It is a story much bigger and yet much simpler than the ones we tell about ourselves. You could tell spark notes your way through um, required reading lists and still hear it. It is the story of a God who loves us absolutely, no matter what. It's the story of Jesus dying so that we might live. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, um, Sally Lloyd-Jones' book, Jesus tells his disciples, this is how God will rescue the whole world. My life will break, and God's broken world will mend. My heart will tear apart, and your hearts will heal. I won't be with you long. You are going to be very sad, but God's helper will come, and then you'll be filled with a forever happiness that won't ever leave. So don't be afraid. You are my friends, and I love you. So this is the story, C.J. writes, of death and resurrection, of judgment and love, of loss being found. The story of the old passing away and the new taking its place. It's the story of the death of a salesman and the raising of a free man. It is the story that tells us that our stories are none of our business, Mm. that our stories don't belong to us, and that the real story is coming to us. It is an echo chamber, to be sure, so that we may always be reminded of the love that was given for us. So good. You know what, CJ? Another kid in his early twenties that makes you. I mean, you know, but you know what Scott Jones says about CJ. What do you call CJ Scott? You told me this the other day. Do you remember? You call him the mailman. The mailman. Oh, the mailman. Because 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 he always delivers. delivers. (laughs) Yeah, he delivers. delivers. He's the mailman. That guy. He delivers. I mean, I, I. well, the the I guess the writer in the New York Times is the one who said this. You know, those who live outside our um our echo chamber may be more complicated than than we could have imagined. Um, and and then is it a sorry? Is it a she who writes this piece? That's a he. He. So then he 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 goes on to say, um, you know, basically he was the, a she said, "Hey, girl, take a walk on the wild side." <laughs> <laughs> hey, girl. The importance, like, so then, like, if we can sit and we can listen to each other's stories and in all their fullness and entirety, then maybe we'll have a better understanding of each other and blah, 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 which is what we're all saying to each other these days culturally anyway, which is great. And certainly, like, half of seminary was telling our stories to each other. But 
goodness, it wears me out. I mean, that I find so like, here's how I'm going to justify my point of view to you. Here's been my experience. Here's my story. And maybe it'll change your mind if you hear it. Like that's, it's just, it, it, it is the world, right? It is what's expected of us now um, to take a position on anything or to, to justify ourselves in any way. We have to have a story about it. And as someone who has recently written a book, like I'm as guilty of this as anyone else. However, I mean, and as CJ points out at the end, like, you know, Jesus, uh, Jesus sees Martha in all her like frantic self-justification, right? right? And he's like, Martha, Martha. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) Jesus sees the woman at the well. And what does she say about him? She says, he told me everything I had ever done. Like, we don't have to. It's like the one place in this world, of course, because it's not in this world that we don't have to say, well, he, you know, here's why you have to like understand everything about me. Like, goodness, that's so merciful. Yeah, I, I thought this went this CJ's piece uh, got me down another train of thinking because he's he talks about the Undoing Project, which is Michael Lewis's new book, which tells the story of Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman, who were Israeli psychologists who met each other in the 60s. And it's interesting because so much of the way we think, particularly Mockingbird, is totally shaped by these guys' thinking. It's a Tversky, it's a, what's, it's a Carol uh, Tavers, all of her stuff. I mean, it's, it's basically these guys have shaped everything from economics to psychology, the me- medical, the medical field. And they would do these studies like, you know, they would, they would do like a wheel of fortune wheel and you would spin it, right? And it, you know, with numbers like one to a hundred. And then they'd ask you to estimate how many countries are on the continent of Africa. And if you, the higher you spun the wheel mm-hmm. of fortune, the more likely you were to say a higher number. <laughs> like they would do all these things in the, in the human, like people slow down, like probability factor. Okay. You see an accident and then you start driving 50 for two miles for no, just because subconsciously like, Oh, I could get in an accident, I, like probability factors and things and, and just how, but they start, um, they're, these guys are very – they're like the two big dogs uh, uh, in this campus uh, on, in this university in Israel. And Kahneman – Danny Kahneman uh, invited uh, Amos, Amos Tversky to s- lecture in his class. And, and you know, Amos was this giant intellectual. And Danny is like the first person to challenge him. He's like – because he's saying how humans are rational actors and can make really good decisions. And Kahneman's like – the first one, I'm not. I make mistake after mistake, and I'm smarter than most of the people I know. <laughs> this is nonsense. That, and, and I can show to you that people make systematic mistakes when they're faced with decisions and judgments. And this intrigued Amos. And very quickly, they're, they're in a room together, and they shut the door, and they don't want to see or talk with anybody else. And then this, they collaborated for years. And um, in, in Freakonomics, uh, Michael Lewis is on Freakonomics, and... Lewis said they were regarded as two big dogs on campus, yet they were also regarded as polar opposites. No one who knew them could imagine them spending five minutes together. Conan was difficult, neurotic, seemingly perpetually unhappy, full of doubt. He was very fertile, had lots of ideas, but the minute he had the ideas, he thought they were crap and walked away from his ideas very quickly. What he says now is he had a peculiar talent for changing his mind. He likes changing his mind. That's a nice spin on it. And Thubner says, do you believe that? And Michael Lewis says, I think it's more complicated than that. I think he doesn't know what stability feels like. He was a child of the Holocaust. He spent ages 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 being chased through southern France by Nazis and hiding in chicken coops and barns. He watched his father die because he couldn't seek medical treatment for fear of being caught by Germans. And he himself, as one of his central qualities, has a kind of evasiveness. People found him hard to know, but incredibly talented. And when he got up in front of a class and talked, he was mesmerizing. 
so mesmerizing that one of his students said after he has Danny's class, he was finding other professors not interesting and complained to one of the administrators at Hebrew University. And the, the administrator said, you can't do this. You can't compare other teachers to Kahneman. There's Kahneman and then there's everybody else. Amos was untroubled, happy, simple, very clear in his head. You know, uh, you described his childhood. It's not the childhood of an intellectual. It was the childhood of a happy kid who pressed into a military service and through status needs becomes a Spartan warrior, like a lot of these first-generation Israelis were at the time. And he almost certainly killed people. He almost certainly had people trying to kill him. He was a decorated war hero. He had saved other soldiers' lives. At the end of his life, he had shrapnel his body. He's widely admired by everyone who knew him. And Richard Nisbet, uh, a psychologist, said, after meeting Amos and getting to know him, I designed a one-line intelligence test, which gets repeated over and over. It's this. The longer it takes you to, the longer it takes you to figure out that Amos Tversky is smarter <laughs> than you, the stupider you are. <laughs> But these guys had this long, productive friendship that, that they basically changed economics as psychologists. And that's a hard thing. I mean, economics is a pretty kind of – it can be a pretty guilty sort of community. Uh, and at the end of the, of the interview, they talk about um, – they, they had a falling out and stopped working together. And some of it was because Danny thought Amos was getting all the credit for their work and he was very insecure. And then Amos got diagnosed with cancer. And right before he died, they really reconnected. And and we're able to be friends again. And uh, Lewis is one of the most lovable things about Danny is as much as he tortures other people with his doubt, he tortures himself even more. And when Amos had died, he was left with a sense, Danny, that the work that that the world found their work extremely important, but maybe thought he didn't have much to do with it. And he had an invitation from the Nobel Prize Committee to come and give a talk in 2001 in Stockholm, which he thought of as an audition for the Nobel Prize. And he thought the question wasn't, is the work worthy? The question is, am I worthy? And he, you know, some part of him, I think, thought maybe he wasn't. Some part of him always wondered how important he was, where Amos had never had any doubts about Danny's importance. I think Amos actually thought Danny was more important than Amos in the whole thing. And so the prize, prizes usually have a kind of temporary effect. I think Danny and Amos's own work would predict that people's expectation of happiness from a Nobel Prize <laughs> would exceed the happiness in the moment which would probably exceed the happiness of the memory of it. And they, they talk about how Danny, meeting him different, like now that he, when he interviewed Kahneman, he's like, it's a different Kahneman. Like it's, it, it's, and it's almost like an imputation had happened <laughs> to Kahneman that, that allowed him to accept himself. And he's a cheerier person. But as I, I was thinking about this podcast and just uh, Sarah and I had just to write a piece together and working with you guys. And I, I feel like so often one of the beauties of friendship is that you can get mm -hmm. a more full-orbed sense of your own story. And I, I'm working with you, I, I feel like uh, both of you over this year, has been, I brought out a better self for me. Like it, it, I feel like more myself. I feel like there's, there's things that I, 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 I'm able to do with you guys in conversation as we think together and laugh together that I, I just couldn't do uh, alone. So thank you uh, for being friends and colleagues and think co-thinkers, belligerents and whatever else. We yeah, are because you're so grace sweet. to me. I was like, you know, this? I'm a three on the enneagram, and I'm not good with emotion. But that was like the nicest. It has the advantage of being sincere. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, you Scott. Too. Thank you. All right, bye. You guys friends. are wonderful, and we'll talk next week. Thanks for listening to the Mockingcast. As always, you can find any of the content we reference on the podcast on our website, mbird.com. If you like what you heard, please. Please on over to iTunes, give us a rating, maybe even write a review, hopefully a positive one. We exist because of the enthusiasm, support, 
support and generosity of you, our readers and listeners. And for that, we are forever grateful. This podcast is produced by yours truly, Scott Jones, ably assisted by David Peterson and Dustin Coons. Thanks again for listening and have a great weekend.